0: Hey, great to see everybody here today. Um, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you may give us a willing heart to truly understand who you are, to see how you've acted in history, and how you are God who deserves all our trust, all our obedience, and all our soul. May Jesus Christ be here. Amen. <coughs> God is good. God is great, God is faithful. I wonder whether you agree with those statements. I'll repeat them again. God is good, God is great, God is faithful. Uh, Would you agree with those statements? I think that uh, for most of us uh, who go to church, we would agree with those statements. Uh, We would gladly sign up to the creeds which affirm those statements about God. We will affirm them when we sing songs about God's character. We would say Amen to prayers which confess these things about God. But I wonder whether for uh, many Christians we believe them in a confessional sense. Uh, we come to church, we confess it. Whether we believe it in a theoretical sense. But the problem is that we don't really live it out on a practical, functional, day-to-day basis. Oh, is this thing working anymore? OK, good. Now we say that God is good, we can say that God is great. We can say that God is faithful, but what does it mean to actually live this out in our daily lives? That God is good, that God is great, and that God is faithful. Now we begin today in chapter three, by coming back to the person of David. Don't forget. Uh, last week we looked all at Saul's and what happened last week? Saul had killed all these priests. The whole priestly class and destroyed the priestly town of Nob. So in verse 23, chapter 23, verse 1, it says, When David was told, Look, the Philistines were fighting against Hela and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord answered, Go and attack the Philistines and save Hela. It actually brings us back to chapter 22, the beginning of chapter 22, where we actually were last with David. Now, but the last of David, if you remember in this map uh at chapter 22, two verse uh, four and five, remember David had put his parents uh in thiszpah in moab, okay now he, he didn't put his parents there because it's an uh, old folks good old folks' home there, all right but because it was safe, okay, and because remember King Saul and Judea was trying to destroy David, so he he lived there for a while, he put his parents there. But we also learned that later he, he probably, while well, his parents were there, stayed at this place called the Stronghold of Masada, which is probably where the Stronghold was. And humanly speaking, that was a really logical place to be, especially because if he had ever needed to escape, he was very far away from the reach of King Saul. But then in chapter 22, verse 5, which was the last of where we heard of David, next slide, right? God had, said, had sent a prophet, <coughs> the prophet, Gad to David and said, Do not stay in the, stronghold, in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hareth Now if you look back in the map, the next slide. So, oh, that's good. that's good, that's good, that's good. Okay. So his parents are here. He's here. It seems like it's a really good place for David to wait out King Saul for Saul to die. But God actually asked him to go back into Judah, uh, up closer to Gibeah, closer to King Saul, which seems like, humanly speaking, a very dangerous thing to do, a very foolish thing to do. Because he's already very safe. And David actually finds himself in this place called the Forest of Hereth. Uh, You probably can't see it because it's a bit, not as dark as the other things. But you can see how close it is to King Saul. So at that point in time, chapter 22, verse 5, you think, Why does God want him to put his life at risk? Because the safest place was to stay where he really was. But as we come to chapter 23, we see that obviously God has a plan for everything. And God had a plan that as David and his men were in the forest, they would be in a position to help uh, the people of Keilah when they were attacked by the Philistines. And that's exactly what happened. Because the Philistines attacked, the people of Keilah. Uh, Keilah is over here. Okay? So, the forest of Perez is here. Keilah is here. Philistine is here. So, you can see it's very close. So, the Philistines attack the people of Keilah and David and his men are in a position to help. Now, as we look at verse 3 to 5, the question is, yes, they are in a position to help, but will they help? They already have enough problems with King Saul trying to kill them? Is it worth having another enemy opening up another front in the war, and having the Philistines actually put them in danger. So look at what it says there in verse 3, and that's exactly what David's men say, look. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah, we are afraid. How much more then, if we go to Kila against the Philistine forces? Hey, look, look. We've got enough problems with King Saul and his men trying to kill us, and now you want us to attack the Philistines. Is it really our business? That's what they're saying, right? Isn't it better just to hide here and to stay safe in the forest? Why do we want to go out into the open and attack the Philistines? And while we're fighting the Philistines, maybe King Saul attacks us as well. Verse 4. Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Keilah, for I am going to give you, sorry, I am going to give the Philistines into your hands. So, David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Now, humanly speaking, again, it made no sense to leave Mizpah, to leave the stronghold, to go to the forest of for Hareth. Humanly speaking, it made no sense to go to fight the Philistines in Keilah when you already had King Saul trying to kill you. But what does David do? He goes to God. He goes to God two times, as we see in verse one to five, to ask God very clearly, "What is your guidance to us? What should we do? Uh, what is your clear instruction to us?" And two times, David clearly answers. Sorry, God clearly answers David that David and his men must go and attack and fight the Philistines at Gilead. Now. We're not supposed to uh, read chapter 23 by itself. Chapter 23 is really meant to be read side by side with chapter 22. Now in chapter 22, we're supposed to see how King Saul is completely opposite to David. Because in chapter 22, King Saul killed the whole priestly class of Israel and destroyed the priestly city of Nob. And in chapter 22, who did King Saul listen to? Did he seek guidance from anybody? Did he seek guidance from God? No, he didn't. If anything, the only person that King Saul listened to was Jehov, the Edomite. But on the other hand, compared to the fallen King Saul, the faithless, disobedient and spiritually blind King Saul, David saved the city of Keilah from the Philistines. And why was that? Because he sought God's word. He listened to God's word, and he obeyed God's word. Now, why did David do what he did? Why did he do what was humanly, I guess, foolish and dangerous? I guess fundamentally because he knew God, isn't it? He knew that God was good. He knew that God was not just good in terms of wanting to save the people of Keilah, but God was good in the sense that he trusted that whatever God intended him to do was going to be for good. Good for himself and good in the long run for the people of Israel. And God would look after him and his men. That God's plans for him and his men were for good. And God trusted in that and he obeyed God. And that made him very different from King Saul. And I think that that's one thing that we have to learn, isn't it? you we look from this, really just the first section of this section, of this passage, is to see how David trusted God. So, if we say to ourselves, God is good, then we must say that because God is good, then we must be willing to trust God. Because given a choice of trusting our human wisdom, so often we choose to follow our human wisdom because we think that by following our human wisdom, we will get the good things in life. We will get what's good. But if we trust that God is good, and we know that God is good, then we should trust God instead. We should listen to God and obey what God wants us to do. Now I wonder whether we really believe, in our daily life, that God is good. I know I've met some Christians, and they seem to take the view that when they read the Bible, that actually God is there, but He's not really good in that sense that He wants good things for me. Uh, I, I, you know, they, they sort of feel that when I read the Bible, I don't really want to follow the instructions because God is just is telling me to do things which will, which will stop me from getting the good things in life, enjoying the good life. That's what some Christians actually subconsciously say to me. If I do this, I'm stopping myself from getting the good life. But if we actually know the character of God and God is good, that God means good for his people, if we really believe that, then we should trust it. And that's what David did. Is He trusted God that even though God was putting him in a dangerous situation, that God meant good to come out of it. Now I wonder whether we are the same. I wonder whether we really trust that God is good, that even if we obey God and bad things happen, and we suffer discomfort and struggle, that in the light of eternity, when we look back, when we are in heaven one day and we look back and say, actually God meant this for good. And if we had, you know, by doing these things, yes, it it was painful, it was difficult, it was a struggle, but it was for good. Because God is good and He means good for His people. Well, David was very different from King Saul. He obeyed God, he listened to God, and he trusted God when God told him to go and save the people of Keilah And he put he and his men at risk. But he did it. It goes on in verse 6, where it says, Now Adiatha, <coughs> son of Ahimelech, had brought in, sorry, had brought ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. Verse 7, Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah and he said, God has delivered him into my hands. For David has imprisoned himself by entering a town of gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Adiatha the priest, Bring the ephod, David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town of to come to me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said he will. Again David asked, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 number, others, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. Now the first thing is, <coughs> now we see why David's men were so reluctant to attack the, the, the city and save the people of Keilah. From a human perspective, they were putting themselves into the open and they were trapped in the open. Where the superior forces of King Saul could come and kill them. Right, it's like, you know, in the Vietnam War, right? Uh, I guess the, the Viet Cong and the Americans, the Viet Cong never comes out into the open. They don't go fighting head to head with the Americans because they are sure to lose. They always stay in the forest, they always stay in the background. Well, the same thing is happening here. Uh, David knows that he, he can never come out into the open, but then they, in obedience to God, he comes out to the open, and what has happened? He's trapped in the corner, right? That's a thing, huh? Must be the antibiotics. Okay. So, now, he inquires of God, you know, what, what can I do? I mean, because obviously now he's trapped in a town that says there with bars. Okay, not, not like, you know, he's trapped in a town with lots of pubs. But he's like, trapped in a town where he's, you know, he's trapped in this corner. Okay? That's why the, he's trapped in tequila. You get it? Okay, don't worry. It was corny joke. Was corny joke. Okay. Now, so he asked God what he should do, and again, it's very important because we see here in verse six that actually King Saul, by killing all the the priests, he actually allows the last priest Abiathar to bring the ephod down with him to David. Now, this ephod is very important because actually the ephod has this strange device in it which we are not very sure, which actually is used uh, by the priestly caste to, to see the guidance of God. And he asked God, what will the people of Keilah do if King Saul comes against him and my men? And God says to him, that the people of Keilah will, will sacrifice you. Now, that's really sad Uh, It's a real tragedy because God had actually sent David to to save the people, yet the people would betray David and give him up for their own lives. But I think that something else is more important, and this is what must draw our attention to this passage. It is the greatness of God. God is able to see what will happen in the potential future in lives of people. Now, uh, as part of my sermon preparation, what I often do is I have uh, this thick theology theology handbook and uh, at the back, there's an index of all the Bible passages. So, you know, when I'm preparing the passage, I look at the back and occasionally the index will say, hey, you know, this passage is an important passage. And this passage is actually important because it shows God's power and greatness because He is able to see into the contingency of or the possible futures, and he will know what people do. I'm sorry, this is bad English. Right? He knows what people will do, right? He he is able to see the future, and he is able to know the future. Now, only God is able to do. It. He, God is not. If you look at this passage, God is not guessing. Right? It's not like me asking you, "Oh, you know, if 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 uh, if, if I something something happens, what will something do?" You well I, say, oh, "Well, I think he will probably do this, or she might do this." No, God knows definitely what someone will or will not do. And that's something that makes God great, His foreknowledge of the future. Now, if God is such a powerful God who knows the future, who knows what people can do in different futures, then we should listen to God. That's what what David does. Because he knows what's going to happen in the future, he listens to God, God's guidance. Now, there's another passage in the Bible which uh, rivals this in 1 Samuel ch- chapter 23, which shows uh, God's power or greatness in knowing the contingent future. And that's in Matthew chapter 11. Okay, so if you look at the next slide. Okay, Matthew chapter 11. Now this is very uh, important, but we never try to touch on it uh, as we go to Matthew chapter 11 because it's sort of part of a different flow of the passage. But if you look very carefully, Jesus is actually doing the same thing that, that God just did. So, verse 20 says Then Jesus began to announce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you it will be more bearable in Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum <coughs> Excuse me, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you there will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than you. Again, you notice here Jesus knows the contingent future. And he says, "So if I did these miracles that I did with you and I replicated them in different places and different times, I would know how people react. If I know how they reacted, then this is what will happen. But because you did not do this, this is definitely what is going to happen to you in the future. Can you see the greatness of Jesus and God? They know what's going to happen potentially to different people at different times and they know definitely what's going to happen in the future. Now, <clears throat> if God is great, if God is able to see the future, if God is able to know how people respond to the future, if God knows a definite future, then what should we do? We should do what David does. We should l- listen to God. We should seek guidance from God because God actually knows is the only one who knows what is going to happen for sure in the future. And I think that that's the question for us, isn't it? We say, God is great. If God is great, and God knows the future, then in our daily lives, we need to listen to God all the time. We don't listen to the world, we listen to God, because God knows what is definitely going to happen. And what is always going to happen. Now you notice that King Saul uh, never inquired of God. And um, even when King Saul inquired of God, God never answered Saul. Now we are not like that. Okay? We are not in King Saul's position. We are, we are God's people. We know that God is not a silent God. We know that God is not muzzled. God wants to speak to us, He's spoken to us in His Word. So that I think that in every situation, we must always go and ask ourselves Am I listening to God's will in my life? Or am I seeking my own will, or my own idea, or am I trying to shape my own future? I uh, have great respect for this pastor before who was at Otter Road Presbyterian, uh, David Burke. I remember once he shared with me this uh, piece of advice. He said that. In his many years of being a pastor, because you know he was, uh, he was much older, a much older man, so, you know, many people often come up to him and ask him to pray for them. I think that's a very common thing for pastors. People often come and, uh, and, and get asked to pray for it. But he realized that actually for many Christians, uh, both in Australia and Singapore, they are asked to be prayed for, but before they even ask to be prayed for, they haven't actually asked, what is God's will in this decision? So they go up to David and say, oh, you know, I've got this plan to do this, I want you to do this, I've decided to do this, can you pray for me? And uh, David used to say to them many times, uh, okay, why don't we sit down and pray, but let's, let's, let's first ask God, what is His will in this, in this matter? I wonder whether that's the case for us. We say that God is great, If God is great, He knows the future, He controls all things, then when we make our decisions, do we ever ask ourselves, what is God's will in this matter? Or do we just do what we want to do? Because then we're really saying God is not great after all. Or we're saying God is great, but actually, we will take the future into our own hands. Well, Saul never really asked that question. King Saul was never interested in what God's will was, or if he did, he didn't care. But David was interested in knowing what God's will was and what God's guidance was. And I think for ourselves, it's very important that we are too. Because God is great. Now the story then goes on. (coughs) And uh, I won't read it. It's from verse 13 all the way to verse 28. But the key verse here really is in verse 14, isn't it? Verse 14 says, David stayed in the wilderness stronghold." and the hills in the desert of Zif. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. Now, um, when you look at the, our translation, uh, for those of you who are using the NIV Bibles, or some other versions of the Bible, uh, you, you actually lose some of the direct translation, but the, the key word that is being repeated in chapter 23 is the word Hand. Hand. Okay, if you look at the Bible, uh, you, you, it's actually used nine times uh, the, the word hand, but you can't see all. The, you can only see a few times in chapter 23. But most primarily is where you see in verse 14. Okay, day after day Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. But if you look up here, okay, I'm going to show you all the times that it appears in this section, and you see that there's a common theme here. All right. So, verse 4, <coughs> it said, Then David inquired the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will, I will give the Philistines into your hand. In verse 6, When Abiathar the son of Abimelech had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with Ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars, will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand, will Saul come down as his servant has heard, O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant, and the Lord said he will come down. Verse 12, then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul, and the Lord said they will surrender you. The Lord, sorry, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country in the wilderness as this. and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. And verse 16. Are you following me? I'm oh, good, okay. And Jonathan, Saul's son rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, in verse 17, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. He shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, so my father knows this. Okay. Then the last one, verse twenty. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul and Gibeah, saying, "Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Resh, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand." Now, uh, is, is this is this because the writer of 1 Samuel chapter twenty-three like you know, a, a lot of vocabulary, or, you know, he just really liked the word hand, kept using hand, hand, hand all the time. No? Okay, now the word hand here in Hebrew literally means power, or control. It's very straightforward, you know. Abiathar had ephod in his hand. He had it in his power. The Philistines were given to David's hand, his power. King Saul thought that David was given to his hand, his control, his power. It's all about power. So King Saul thinks that he has power, real power, he has spies and the Ziphites who want to give David into his hand. He has people who are willing to betray him, the Kila people, to betray G- uh, David into his hand. So Saul thinks that he is more powerful. But actually God is more powerful. God keeps David out of King Saul's hand. It is God who actually has all power. That is the reality of what we're seeing here. But the surprise really comes in verse 15 to 18 in this section. Because when you look at verse 15 to 18, and remember we say whenever you look at uh, Bible stories, the most important thing is the surprising things. When you see something that's surprising, it's meant to take your attention. So here we have Saul looking for uh, day day after day, isn't it? It says in in verse 14, day after day Saul was searching for him. And then he can't find him. But then verse 16, Saul's son Jonathan goes to visit David of Horesh. His father is looking for him everywhere, but his son goes to have a cup of tea with David. And what does Jonathan do? Jonathan goes there in verse 16 and helps David find strength in God. Or actually, the, the literal translation is he strengthens David's hand. In God. Now, what a great friend Jonathan is. You know, we really need friends like that. Uh, I was reading a book about friendship a while ago and about how we know there are different sorts of friends that we have. You know, we've got friends we play sport with, friends we watch EPL with, friends we go shopping with, friends we play computer games with, friends we just eat with. But friends like Jonathan, they are priceless. The ones who strengthen our hands in God. Who encourage our faith in God. Those are the sort of friends we should be looking out for. And those are the sort of friends we should be to other people. Now imagine that, you know, David, after all these cliches running from Mizpah, to the stronghold, to the forest of Horef, to Keilah, then to the desert, he was losing heart. He was getting fatigued, he was despairing. And Jonathan, as the saying goes, a friend in in a time of need is a friend indeed, he comes and what does he do? He strengthens David's hand in God. And how does he strengthen David's hand in God? How does he encourage David to find strength in God? He reminds him that God is a faithful God. Because in verse 17 he says, he reminds David of of what God will do, isn't it? He says, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you, you will be king over Israel. He reminds David of the promise of God, and that God is a faithful God, and he will keep that promise. So don't be afraid, he tells David, don't lose heart. Because God is a faithful God and you will be king. David. You see, at the end of the day, God is faithful. And we see right at the end of chapter twenty three that even as Saul and his forces go around to encircle David, suddenly, miraculously, if it wasn't for the Bible, by a fluke or whatever, the Philistines come and attack, and then David is saved. Why? Because God is faithful. God is faithful to His promise that David will become king. Now, I think for ourselves, do we believe that God is faithful to us? Do do we believe that God is faithful to His promises to us? Because if we believe that God is faithful, is a faithful God, then we should be strengthened in our faith too. Strengthened in our hand in God. In John chapter 10, uh okay. Yeah. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, Jesus promises that as long as you follow Jesus, you are a sheep, you listen to his voice, you will always be taken care of by God. You will always be taken care of by Jesus. No one can ever snatch you out of the Father's hand. There is nothing to fear. You should always be strengthened in your hand in God. Now, if you know that God is a faithful God, then there is nothing to fear, isn't it? Don't be afraid. That's what Jonathan tells David. Now again, I I meet Christians who are fearful. They're fearful of many things, isn't it? They're fearful of situations. Maybe they're fearful of what people think. They're fearful of repercussions, of the decisions you make as a Christian. Maybe you're fearful of what it might mean, who you might offend being a Christian. You're fearful of losing friends? But why should we fear? God is faithful. God is watching over you and he will, not, he will not let you go. He will not forget you. He will not actually abandon you. So don't be afraid, but strengthen your hand in God. Now, I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones, I was reading this book, And uh, he gave gave a really cool quote. He said, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Okay, I'll repeat that again. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And what he meant was, we are always listening to all these whispering voices in our head. Don't trust God, you know. The, the voices tell us, trust in yourself and trust what the world says. Uh, fear the world, fear what the world can do to you. Uh, uh, listen to the wisdom of the world. Uh, don't, don't listen to what God has to say. But I think Martin Lloyd-Jones is right, Instead of listening to these voices... We should be talking to ourselves. And we should be talking to ourselves, not like you know, like madmen or whatever. But we should be talking to ourselves about what God is like. We should be keep telling ourselves that oh, God is a good God. God is good and He means good for us. God is a great God. He knows the future, He controls the future, He knows what people are going to do in the future. We should listen to Him. He knows the steps for our future. God is a faithful God. We should fear nothing. We should trust in God because God will never abandon us. Um, in this book I was reading, he said, we just need to keep repeating these words to ourselves. God is all I need. God is all I need. So, a conclusion. <coughs> uh, last week, I, I, we all could see, I, got a, I had a bad cold and I had a high fever. I was shivering in bed. I was sitting I was I was thinking, how am I going to finish this sermon? Okay, anyway, I was telling myself, okay, God is good, God is great, and God is faithful, right? Uh, You know, I don't have to fear, I just put my trust in God. Everything is part of His plan, everything will work out as He wants it to work out. Right? I wonder whether that's something which we need to live by day by day. We come to church, we sing the songs, we pray the prayers, we confess the creeds, we do all these things. We say, yes, God is good. God is great. God is faithful. But do we actually live it out in our daily lives? Because if that's who God really is, then that's the way that we should respond. God is good. God is great. And God is a faithful God. And so let's go to God and pray. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for who you are and how you have shown that so clearly in the lives of people and the history and the way you've acted towards your people and the way that you sent Jesus. That you are God who is a good God, a God who means good for your people. But so many times we question your your, your instructions, we, we doubt you, we doubt your goodness towards us. Even from the beginning in time of Adam and Eve where even they doubted Adam and Eve whether you really wanted good for them. Dear Father, we pray that we will always see that you are good. Dear Father, we pray that we will see that you are great. That you control all things, you know all futures, you know what is to happen and we need to listen to you instead of listening to our own voices. And that God, you are a faithful God and you are faithful to your promises. And keep us strong in our hand in you dear Father. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.